Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Second Kings. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, today we wrap up Hezekiah, chapter 20 of Second Kings. And we recall how Hezekiah, according to the text of Second Kings itself, how he stands out. There had not been a king like him, really, since the time of David. In terms of his personal righteousness and piety, his, the role that he played in his office as king. And we saw how the Lord worked tremendous miracles, um, not only corporately for the people and sparing them uh, from the Assyrian army. You can recall from chapter 19, verse 35, the climax to this, where the angel of the Lord comes and strikes down 185,000. Impossible to defeat. Force is defeated by the angel of the Lord, such that not even a single arrow flies in the direction of the city. Not a, not a single sword swings. Not a single rampart is built. God gives his people the victory. Then here in chapter 20, we transition to kind of this other side of the coin. Uh, God's personal um, intervention in the life of Hezekiah where God extends his life. And of course, just a really dense, thoughtful, thought-provoking section here, and we spend a lot of time on verses uh, 1 through 7 in particular. But we see here, too, a remarkable intervention and miracle of God um, in healing Hezekiah and in providing the sign that comes before his healing of the shadow uh, on the steps moving backward. You can see that in chapter 20, verse 10. Now, we had gotten a little ways uh, into the section. If you're in your Lutheran study Bible, the heading there, the subheading is Hezekiah and the Babylonian envoys. We had gotten through verse 15, but just for the sake of regaining our bearings, let's take a look at verse 12 once more. Unfortunately, we see here, we've seen in many ways in which Hezekiah reflects positively as the king, as the anointed one, reflects positively as a type and foreshadowing of Christ, the true king, the true anointed one. We're going to see now ways in which Hezekiah does not, uh, and, and where he himself is in, in antithesis as a sinful human being to Christ. So we see that exemplified in these verses. Uh, chapter 20, verse 12, at that time... Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house. We talked about the folly of this last week. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. And we talked about the root and origin of this folly. It's his own pride. 
You know, it's, there's nothing inherently wrong with a census, but why does David do the census? What's the, what, what's the internal impulse for this census? It's, he's taking stock of his own strength and the strength of the people not realizing that the strength comes solely from the Lord. And so, too, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with, you know, showing hospitality, taking someone on the tour. And yet, what's going on here? Uh, there's this internal pride of this is who I am, this is my glory, this is the glory of our kingdom. And we, uh, we, I, I, I'll take, I'll take full blame. I likened this to the old TV show Cribs, where you know you've got the wealthy guy showing off all his, uh, all his wealth and riches. It's a, it's an egotistical exercise, and in this case, a very dangerous one. So, uh, verse fourteen. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah, and of course, yes, this is the, this is the author of the biblical text. Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, Um, nothing, nothing. <laughs> Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Interesting. Interesting answer. He doesn't hedge that at all. Kind of wonder if at this point in time he would still continue to be proud and full of himself and just answer the prophet without a care in the world. Like, of course, I showed them everything. Every last thing. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Now, obviously, this is bigger than Hezekiah. But Hezekiah's arrogance and pride makes for the opportunity to, for this statement to be made. But, of course, this statement really is much more than Hezekiah's one little, you know, infidelity or show of immorality and foolishness here in this instance. This is an indictment of the whole of Judah's culture and how they've departed from the covenant of Yahweh and from his gifts and from his mercy. And so this is kind of a, a spark that sets the forest to fire, a, a, a straw that breaks the camel's back, a microcosm, if you will, of a greater history, however you want to conceive of this. Uh, but that's what's going on here. You know, it's, we shouldn't see this as though just because Hezekiah played cribs, now all of uh, Judah is doomed. That would be a misreading of the text. This story is much bigger, as we've seen progressing through First and Second Kings. All right, nonetheless, Isaiah speaks the word of the Lord, and it is not a good or comforting word, Babylon's going to come and carry you all away. Of course, uh, this is not far-fetched in the least, as Judah has seen much larger Israel, the ten northern kingdoms, be taken away by Assyria. Very spicy. Maybe as the vicar's looking on the Hebrew, he can let us know if there's anything particular in the language. But in the English, it's spicy enough. What did you, what did you show them? Everything. 
What's going to be left? Nothing, says the Lord. That's the end of verse 17. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. Ah, this is not what any father wants their son to grow up to be. I can maybe let the study note do the speaking here. So, um, eunuchs. Now, this is the Hebrew word can be translated as officer. For example, in Genesis uh, thirty-seven, thirty-six, and some other instances. But of course, in some instances, as the study note indicates, these men were castrated, and there are some biblical references to that. Of course. Um, being a eunuch can take on a couple of different forms, or several different forms, maybe. I haven't thought all that much about it. But um, castration is one and the obvious one. So the study note continues. Castration would directly threaten the Davidic dynasty, though the Lord would prevent the total loss of the family. And then we have this. Um, we've heard a quote from him before, uh, Aphrahat, this 4th century uh, Syriac father. Um, the... Kingdom of the Son of Man shall be established, an eternal kingdom, he writes. Be quiet, O you ruler that does exalt yourself, in this case, Hezekiah. Vaunt not yourself, for if your wealth has lifted up your heart, it is not more abundant than that of Hezekiah. Yeah, Hezekiah in view. Who went in and boasted of it before the Babylonians. Yet it was all of it carried away and went to Babylon. All right, so pause there, but maybe put your finger right there in the notes. We can just pick up in a minute, but pause there. So what, what, is, the, what is the life application for us? Okay, well, in what do we bozo, in what do we place our sense of security? Things. Things. My, I've got my house. You might even get to the stage at which you say, I've got my house paid off. Uh, I've got my, I've got my job, my income, or you might even get to the point, I've got my 401k. I've got everything all set. My trust is in my stuff. As someone said, yeah, my, my trust is in my goods. So then, then what, is, uh, what is the application here? Well, as this jeopardized Hezekiah was seen by the Lord as a great insult, and indeed um, Hezekiah will, well, already in the speaking, he directly feels and experiences the things that are yet to come. But that's our warning too. That's our warning too. So I think I think this uh, church father, um, Aphrahad, is right in pointing this out. Be careful that you don't exalt or vaunt yourself. If wealth, if security lifts up our hearts, remember Hezekiah. How when he boasted, the Lord took away his reason for boasting. He boasted it before the Babylonians. Yet it was all of it carried away and went to Babylon. Now here's the next part where you left your finger, hopefully. And if you glory in your children, they shall be led away from you to the capital B beast. Isn't that interesting? Probably a connection to Revelation and the connection between the beast and the woman in Babylon. 
as the children of King Hezekiah were led away and became eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Of course, I mean, the nitty-gritty of it is, why are you castrated? Why do, why do you need a eunuch? Because you want males in your court, but you don't want them a threat to your harem or whatever else. And so that's the, uh, that's the idea there, practically speaking. Um, no doubt there's probably some humiliation and shame and degradation and that kind of thing um, from which the, the king of Babylon perceives himself to be more glorious or some such thing. So those dynamics are going on. But of course, what are the, the according to this church father, it's very interesting, what are the two things we have to guard our hearts against? Uh, our wealth and our security in our wealth, um, our children, which I think is a very fascinating thing because our, our culture is very schizophrenic with children, isn't it? On the one hand, as long as they're in the womb, we hope they're dead. And then as soon as they come out of the womb, we worship them as gods. That's completely disordered our culture's view toward children in a quite schizophrenic way. You know, they're either the devil or God. And the answer is no, <laughs> neither. And the, pro and the proper ordering is neither of these. And so, I, you know, an interesting, an interesting take here from this church father writing all these years ago, you know, 1600 years ago, that we not glory in our children, in our progeny, in our line. Um, because they themselves can be taken away. And so our glory is to be in God alone, of course. Children perceived as a gift from him. Our wealth perceived as a gift from him. But he himself, our, our only true security. And our only true uh, future and heritage. All right. Well, I'll take that for what it's worth. I think it's worth considering. Now, where did I leave off? Let's just look at verse 19, just so I can get a, get a toehold here. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah. I hope I didn't skip a section. I was doing this study note. That's what discombobulated me. That's, right. That's it. 19, thank you. Then Hezekiah spoke to Isaiah. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Which sounds okay, except for the next line. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Whoa! Whoa! Unimaginably selfish, self-absorbed, short-sighted. Hmm. As long as it's okay for us, who cares what happens to our children? Ah! <laughs> In what ways do we see it today? I, I can't help but think, I mean, my mind goes to, to like the national debt yeah. on a corporate level. I mean, basically, we've sold our children. I don't know why I'm smiling. Because <laughs> you either laugh or cry. Well, that's, I think, why I'm smiling. It's so uncomfortable. Um, ew, I mean, what have we done? What have we done? In many respects as a people, it's it's... We don't really care as long as we're okay right now. So much of our economics, whether they're personal or corporate as a nation, are based in this kind of thinking. Uh, well, as long as I'm okay. I hate to say it, and I probably shouldn't go into too many details here, but I've seen the same spirit in the church. In pastors, well, as long as my bread is buttered, 
and in congregations. Well, as long as we're still doing okay. So this idea is uh, is a rather universal idea. It takes on many different forms, personal and corporate, and it's one in which we should, one of which we should be aware, and of course quick to repent where we see it in ourselves. You know, I don't know. Sometimes your flesh has involuntary sinful thoughts, doesn't it? I mean, even before, like, even before you've even had a conscious impulse or like decision to think, it's just there. It's just there. Sometimes when I'm thinking about like. You know how how quickly America is declining, and I think, well, I'll probably make it out okay, but my <laughs> but my children, they're doomed, you know, kind of thing. But that thought is in your mind before you have even any choice or decision. I mean, immediately upon reflection, reflecting on it, it's like, huh, I actually wish that that were the opposite. I really wish that we could do more now, such that they had to do less. But I don't know. That's the that's the burden of the next generations in the West, is to set right what has been uh, set wrong. And if there's any hope for us, the hope is that we're bottoming out, that we're hitting rock bottom, and that there's going to be a bounce and a rejection, and the pend- we're all going to see- say culturally, this pendulum has swung way too far, and it's time to bounce back to the center. We'll see. We'll see. But as for right now, it looks bleak, and um, we have to really guard our hearts and minds against this kind of idea of like, well, I'm okay. Well, I'm going to ride it out. Well, I'll enjoy this while I can. Um, lest we fall into this ugliness of Hezekiah. All right. Any thoughts on that? I see a hand. Um, are we running a microphone? All the, all the way up here in front. The man in black. <laughs> Yes, I wanted to point out that in the in the Hebrew in um, verse 17, or no, not 17, is it? There will be nothing left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Is, it is 17. So in the Hebrew, it literally says, um, and there will not be a thing that is left over. Or you could, th- this is a theologically loaded word because it's one of the words that we... Um, um, that we use for remnant theology. Uh-huh. So there will not be a remnant from his house. Um, and so all of his efforts to retain all of these things that he's boasting in, you know, his wealth and all of these things, none of it, despite even his best efforts, will be retained. Mm-hmm. Um, the analogy that I like to use is like, it'll, it'll be like trying to nail jello to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's it, it's just it's foolish it. to even try, right? Right, and then you see the the surpassing greatness of God preserving a remnant from His own house. Yes, 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 right? exactly. So these are these are some things. So all these things that He takes pride in, or He's going to be stripped of. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's ultimately God that preserves a remnant in in yeah. the fullness of time. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. My my spidey senses were tingling at the symmetry there between the everything and the nothing. You know, I have shown them everything. You will have nothing. So thank you for that. Uh, very interesting. Very interesting. And of course, of course, as you pointed out too, um, marvelous that even though this, you know, this curse kind of comes forward from God and seems absolute, and in some respects is. I mean, they're absolutely carried away to Babylon. Even still, God shows his unmerited mercy, grace, and kindness in sustaining the line of Christ and sustaining the sons of Hezekiah down down to Christ in sustaining his people through their captivity such that it doesn't become a, a permanent destruction, but uh, they are uh, 
they are brought back into the land and blessed solely on account of God's grace and mercy. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Okay, so this is some ugliness that we see in Hezekiah, some ugliness that we want to uh, repent of and avoid. Verse 20, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah. It's kind of sad that this is the last episode, but you know what? Even a good king is a fallen king. And even a, even a saint of God is a sinner this side of everything. So it ends this way. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Now, you know, it is the Holy Spirit writing these things. And so it is worth kind of noting. He's the guy that brings water into the city. And of course, Christ as King, as Messiah, brings water in living water that flows. I don't want to make too much about it, but it is the Holy Spirit. And so, um, you know, I don't think it's wrong at all to see a hint. And if this were the, if this were the, the text in the lectionary, I would certainly be preaching it that way. No doubt about it. Um, I just don't think we need to make a, you know, a big, a big deal out of every detail necessarily. But I simply point that out because it's there. All right, that's Hezekiah. Any, uh, I mean, there's a lot here. Hezekiah is a major figure. Kind of nice. Kind of a, a beautiful reprieve, isn't it? Um, it's kind of how, how kings goes. It's like wicked king, wicked king, wicked king, good king. Let's meditate on this for a little bit. Wicked king, wicked king, wicked king. You know? So um, we've had our nice little meditation. Now I think, if I'm not mistaken, we get right back into some, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We get right back into some... Uh, Wicked kings here, no doubt about it. So any thoughts you have or any questions, anything um, rattling around in your mind about Hezekiah or um, where we're at right now in the narrative, please. I have a question on um, when you said about uh, we shouldn't just care about ourselves in the mm -hmm. how the country's going, but our children. Yeah. And how would we do that? Teach them the faith or... Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'll limit it to my thought, which is a relatively shallow thought. And if, if you've got a deeper approach or a deeper question, we can go that way. But um, I, yeah, I mean, in my thinking, there's not even anything we as Christians are going to do about it. It's more just reflecting on the sorry nature and sinfulness of self-servingness of collective man. And how we see that manifest in something like our national budget and the way we've really, I mean, how else, uh, how else can you consider it? I think that this is an apolitical statement. I don't really think, I mean, if you're in any party, how could you not say that by virtue of the massive debt that it is impossible to take care of in this generation? We haven't foisted that upon a subsequent generation, that we haven't taken our comfort at their expense. And that's, it's very, it's very much analogous to or connected with, I think, this thought of Hezekiah of like, well, as long as I'm good, who cares what happens to them? They're going to be eunuchs. They're going to be slaves. Uh, at least I'll be free, you know? Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question or touches on it. Like I said, my reflection wasn't all that deep or profound. It's just that. Yeah. yeah I mean, what, what would we do? What would we do as grandparents or as, or as parents? Yeah. Raise our, raise our children and not live this way. Raise our, raise our children to take responsibility for themselves and um, not think in self-centered ways. I, I think that that would kind of be an antidote in some respects, because that's the nature of uh, of what it is to be a Christian, you know, to be faithful in your vocations and to try to put the people around you and the subsequent generations in a better place, right? 
We've talked at length uh, about that, how um, it may not seem like much, but just you retaining the faith, even in the context of your family, may have kind of untold fruit down the generational line. You didn't, you know, you didn't do anything that special. You certainly didn't perceive it as anything that special. And yet, zoomed out in some sort of generational time frame, you were the anchor. You were the one that didn't give up, and that faith passed on through you, kind of thing. So, teaching our kids to do that, teaching our kids to live and wait, to live to their own hurt, for the good of, uh, for the love of God, and the good of His good purposes, and for the love of neighbor, and and their good. And um, I think that that's what we're called to do as Christians, whether or not that has any great societal impact or not. You know, is kind of a secondary question, and probably a little bit. I'd be inclined to answer it pessimistically, but um, it's not the point. What is, what is it to be a true man? To be a man in the image of God, a man in the image conformed in Christ, and Christ leaves nothing, you know. He, he accomplishes it all, conquers it all, does it all for the sake of uh, God and his good purposes, for the sake of neighbor. So that's our, that is our identity. All right. Sir, yes, please. Um, one second. Sorry, Barry. Um, I wanted to bring up how, well, two two things. So the first thing that comes to my mind when um, Hezekiah is saying, you know, well, why not if there's peace and security in my days? Um, I am also reminded, we, we spent a lot of time talking about Adam and Eve today. Mm-hmm. I'm also reminded of, of, that, of that account in this text because I doubt very seriously that Adam really considered the weight of his actions as he partook of the fruit in the garden and how he would condemn the rest of his progeny into his own rebellion. That's he, a weighty thing, isn't yeah. it? Oh man, I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I'm glad you brought it up because it's profoundly true. Mm-hmm. It's not without a tinge of pain though that I say that because, oh, how often we think of our sins as just affecting us. Right. Yeah, and think of ourselves as like isolated or disconnected or it just goes no further or just to me and then these people and no right. further. But yeah. It's much bigger than that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The other thing I wanted to bring up is an archaeological note. Um, on, in uh, the study note on, on verse 20, talks about this spring of Gihon outside of Jerusalem mm. um, that uh, Hezekiah actually built a tunnel that you can walk even today if you were to go to Jerusalem. And uh, this is, as the study note indicates, it is a remarkable engineering feat because the way that they constructed this tunnel was they started at two different ends and were were making their way through solid rock and they had to find each other in right. in the rock. I remember I remember studying this once. Yeah, now. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, um, a an engineering feat. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. They had to find each other with their pickaxes and. I mean, I was going to ask you if you knew the the technique or the technology they used in order to try to ensure that. I don't remember. I mean, clearly it was very rudimentary. I mean, they they didn't have nearly what we have today for that kind of mm-hmm. you know feat. But in any case, um, yeah. So there is an inscription you can read, and my professor cruelly had me translate that, and it was not very easy. While you've got the mic, would you just read the study note for us, for the sake sure. of those online or who may not have the Bible? Yeah, yes. or the study Bible. I mean. Um, summary of Hezekiah's reign uh, especially mentions the tunnel he made through solid rock from Gihon Spring outside Jerusalem to the Pool of Siloam within the city's walls. More than 1,700 feet long, this amazing engineering feat was discovered in 1838. 
On its wall is a Hebrew inscription of Hezekiah's day, telling of the tunnel's dis- uh, construction. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So, thanks like I said, for, you you can go and walk this thing today, and uh, thanks for thanks for drawing attention to that. That'd be really cool to do. I wonder too; it'd be fascinating if people doubted that this could have taken place, and then boom, nineteenth century, they find it. You know, <laughs> there's no way they would have had the technology to do this. Oops, we discovered it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Any other uh, any other questions, comments, thoughts? Observations from Hezekiah. Okay, off we go. A bad king. How bad a king are you? Real bad. Manasseh, not good. If you just glance over at um, the study note on verse 2, it'll kind of give you some, some context here. Hezekiah hoped in vain for a successor who by wholehearted devotion to God might save Jerusalem from the doom pronounced upon it by Isaiah. Isn't that interesting? Even when God pronounced doom, the faithful always believed that there, that there may be, God may relent. God may change his mind. God may delay. I love that. I love that. Because they know how merciful God is. That even, you know, when God promises good, there's no way he's going back on it. But when he promises evil, there's a chance he's going back on it. I love that. Have you noticed that in the scriptures? It's always that way. That's just glorious. They know who God is. Well, unfortunately, the next line, the 55-year rule. Ha! We, we're irritated with our president, presidents after four years or eight years. Can you imagine? The 55-year rule of his son Manasseh, the apple did fall far from the tree was no longer, or excuse me, was longer and more wicked than that of any king of Judah. So you have a, quite the antithesis there, don't you? From Hezekiah, there was nobody better since David, to Manasseh, there was nobody worse. Nevertheless, a little more than half a century was to elapse before divine judgment engulfed the city. What's that statement about the wheels of justice? They grind slowly and yet exceedingly fine. Yeah, I I think that um, God in his mercy gives them this time to repent. You know, God is not in a hurry to destroy anything. Um, He gives them time. And what does sinful man do with that time, with that mercy? Ah, he's not watching, he doesn't care. I guess he was fibbing. (laughs) I guess it'll never come. Yeah, well, it finally does come, of course. But yeah, little more than half a century was to elapse before divine judgment engulfed the city. All right, well, let's read about Manasseh, even though we don't really want to. Um... What's the, what's the larger theological point in the false kings and the bad kings and the wicked kings? I mean, the kings are anointed ones. These the templates for the false cry, for false Christ, who lead people into apostasy and who sit in the, you know, in the position where they should be leading in the stead and by the command of God, they're doing the opposite. And so they're antichrists. This is the template from which the uh, New Testament texts draw. All right, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. 
and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name, okay, this is an important piece of data for one of our operating theories here. Um, it's not just the good king, the good kings in Judah whose mother are na- mothers are named, even the evil kings, but, so that part's debunked, but the part that's confirmed is that more often than not, indeed almost all the time, the mothers of the kings of Judah are named. And we obviously have connected that with uh, Mary and Jesus and the importance, of that kind of nascent theology that the Holy Spirit has laid here. Um, the king has a mother. Where, who's his, you know, his, his father just isn't, isn't mentioned. We know who his father is, but it's not mentioned. It's a textual kind of thing to highlight and emphasize the mother. So we're used to picturing this kind of queen mother and her son. We've talked about how that's abused in Roman Catholic theology. Well, we'll strain out the abuse and we'll keep the, the type um, intact. All right, his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. All the way back to uh, what would it be? Joshua. All the way back to Joshua. Joshua and the people were, were to drive out the inhabitants of the land, the pagan, horrible, um, murderous people of the land. And then the subsequent battles fought by the judges because that wasn't carried out in accord with God's command. And now finally, Judah has succumbed entirely and become no different than they. So Manasseh leads them according to what is evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. By the way, that line, I know a lot of like kind of new Christians or Christians returning to the faith are sometimes scandalized by like the violence of the Old Testament and that kind of thing. But you, you have to remember texts like this, the despicable practices. What were those despicable practices? Practices that kind of like you would go, okay, that, that's like in the camp of Hitler and Stalin and, uh, you know, maybe even more grotesque in some respects. I mean, these are really nasty, gross, demonically influenced peoples um, doing disgusting, violent, superstitious, grotesque, sexually immoral included things. I mean, uh, these are people that, like, Americans would think they were righteous fighting a war against. So it's just kind of ignorance and or hypocrisy for us to you know, clutch our pearls at God when he enacts his justice. Not to say nothing of the fact that he is the God of all the nations and it's his place to judge anyway. So, yeah, worth, worth noting, noting that um, in texts that point it out and make it obvious. All right, so he's engaged in evil. He's doing the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Verse 3, for he rebuilt, oh, so painful, rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, has destroyed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, here is, here is an example of like the, the fragility of good and the sturdiness of evil. How many kings does it take before it's finally rebuilt? Hezekiah, I mean, all the way down the line to Hezekiah, and, or excuse me, the, well, the pagan place is knocked down, the temple um, reshaped up, re-put together. Uh, how, I mean, how many kings pass before anything good happens? 
And then how many? And then once the good thing happens, how many kings pass until the bad thing happens? Just like that's it, one's done. So hard. It takes so long to do anything right and undo evil. It takes the split second to. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? How、um, even personally, like with temptation, let's say you avoid temptation ninety nine times, and one time you give into it. Are you guilty or not? <laughs> how much credit do you get for the ninety nine times? You, none, zero. I mean, that is the fragility of good. That's how evil is stacked entirely against us, not only individually but corporately as a people. It's just the nature of things, and you kind of. You kind of see that even manifest in the life of congregations sometimes. How easy is it to slide into error and bad practices? How hard is it? How much energy and devotion and dedication does it take to start climbing back up that slippery slope from which you slid? You know, it's really incredible.、It、takes forever.、It、takes time. Ah, I guess it's nice to know we're not alone in the, these dynamics, but that's maybe all the more positive I can get about that reflection. Overall, it's a little depressing. So instantly, instantly, the good that Hezekiah has done is undone. He rebuilds the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah. As Ahab, king of Israel, had done. Ahab, good guy or bad guy? Like the arch bad guy. <laughs> so he's acting like Ahab. Oh, look at this! And worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. Which is probably not merely a reference to like um. Like sun and stars and that kind of thing, but to this belief that there are actually gods up there, and really what we would proper, properly say a, a worship of angels, angelic beings, particularly the fallen ones.、Um, yeah, that's what's going on here. Worshipped all the host of heaven and served them, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, "In Jerusalem will I put my name." And he built altars for all the host of heaven, yikes, in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Ooh, ooh. The idolatry is brought into the house of God itself. I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I get a little uncomfy. I, I don't. There's nothing wrong with. There's nothing wrong with like statues of angels and that kind of thing. I get a little uncomfy sometimes when, like, you can't really tell if the people are worshiping the angel in the house of God or not, bowing before the angel, praying to the angel, this kind of thing. It's like, where have I seen this? But oh yeah, oh yeah, it's a little, little close to home. Okay, what are the priests and the Levites doing? Aren't they making any comment or saying anything to him? Remember, we just went through where one guy. Got his hand turned to leprosy, and now all of a sudden it's like, ah,、eh, no big deal. Yeah, there's definitely they fear Manasseh more than God. That's at least what we we see here. 
Yeah, it's a great tragedy. You would think that some champions would stand forth, and I think they do, because you have prof prophets operating during this time. So there's some resistance, you know. Yeah, but but you're right. You would think that there would be this huge outcry. Well, there's not. That shows you the spiritual state of the leadership and the people. Okay, so if it wasn't enough that he like does all reinstitutes all the idolatry outside of the temple, he even brings it inside of the temple. Remarkable here, he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Oh gosh, it gets worse. And he burned his son as an offering. I mean, again, look at look at how this is literally antichrist because you have you have the father who gives his son for the life of the world, and here the antichrist is burning his own son as an offering to a false god. I hope you can see that without me going into too much explanation. How this is in satanic antithesis to the father sending Jesus, his beloved son. Um, here you have an abominable aping of that, a demonic counterfeiting of that in the most perverted way possible here by uh, Manasseh, burning his son as an offering. And he used fortune-telling and omens. I don't know that we've seen that explicitly since the time of uh, Saul. I could be wrong on that fact, but that's at least what it harkens back to. I mean, this is a guy after the image of Saul, after the image of Ahab. So he's using fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. All the occult, right? And that is almost certainly connected with this idea of the worship of the host of heaven. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Isn't that interesting language? God is indeed slow to anger. He has to be provoked to anger. I love it. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I mean, this is the house of God's mercy and blessing, the house of the one true God on earth. And Manasseh goes ahead and puts in a carved Asherah. That's just, it couldn't be more tragic. It couldn't be more rebellious. It couldn't be more disgusting. Verse 8, And I will not cause the feet of Israel. You know, I will point this out again. I don't want to beat this horse dead once more. But I will point this out. That, um... The furniture in the temple is changing. I mean, far too often it's like, it's like I think Americans and, uh, you know, or Christi Christians in America, I almost said Americans in Christianity. Maybe that's a better way to put it, actually. But Christians, um, Christians here, it's like, it's like when, when, the, when the altar and the crucifix get moved out and the drum set goes in, you know, we think to ourselves, well, that's Adi Afra. 
I can't really mean anything. That's totally neutral. I don't know, maybe it's even in service to God. I, what a Gnostic way to think that the, that the actual moving out, or, or the redesign of churches that look nothing like churches at all and are stripped of anything Christ, such that if you walked in there at any given time of the week, you would have no idea whatsoever what the purpose of this room is for. I mean, that, that is a manifestation of the spirituality of, of the people. It's the manifestation of the spirituality of a church. I, we're fools to ignore it. So I simply point that out because as with the apostasy, so goes the changes to the temple. Um, the changes in faith, all, you know, this is, um, this is the old axiom, and I don't want to get into a whole diatribe about it, of lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of uh, worship and the law of faith are one, is essentially what it means. It's more nuanced conversation than that. But the bottom line is to translate it is, what you believe will manifest itself in the architecture of your church. Where there's a change in the architecture, there's a change in the faith. Where there's a change in the style of worship, there's a change in the faith. And rather properly, there's been a change in the faith, and that's why it's now manifesting itself physically or in the right of the congregation. The idea that these two things are somehow disconnected is uniquely American, uniquely foolish, uh, quite Gnostic. Um, the reality has long been observed at the church. So where you, where you see a church transitioning the way its sanctuary looks or transitioning the way its liturgy is done, do not be a fool. Realize that there's a, rec that there's a transition in the theology that's taken place. And that's most certainly the case here. I mean, here it's just so completely white and black. And the other way, it may indeed be somewhat shades of gray, but I don't know, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Remove the, remove the cross and altar and put in a drum set. It's hard for me to stay neutral on that audio offer or not. So, uh, yeah, so worth pointing out here. Worth pointing out that apostasy, um, a faith in the head always manifests itself physically. Um, verse 8, I think. Now, this is, um, yeah, this is still a quotation. So the quotation begins in the previous verse. This is what the Lord said to David and Solomon. In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Verse 8, and I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Okay, so there's the covenantal promise. Now, again, the covenantal promise is misread if we think that what God expected was like 100% perfect obedience. Then why would he include in the, at the, as the central feature of the Old Testament covenant the, the sacrifices that make atonement for sins? Okay, so what is really in view here? Apostasy or such an accumulation of sin as to render the covenant null and void, this kind of thing. And now the recognition that that has happened once again, now under the reign of Manasseh in a kind of climactic way, that covenant has been broken. So thus, verse 9, but they did not listen. And they willingly, consciously rejected the covenant. They did not listen. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm thinking when you, you made a comment, and I'm looking, when they changed the sanctuary, 
that's why you have to have the fortune tellers and the new people because like in a mega church you would have to have all the other people in there you know the ones that are doing the dreamings and telling your visions and all the other stuff yeah 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 well and you kind of see that don't you i don't know there's a there's a an awful strange correlation between these sanctuaries that have become unrecognizably so and pastors promoting their dreams and vision and woo woo and god laid on my heart and i mean frankly what what the church historically would have recognized as paganism yeah for the new members great point great point right Right, yeah, it's um, it's kind of like the apostasy is right in front of our eyes. We're just afraid to label it as such. And what does that mean? That means like it's also a call for the faithful remnant to double down. That's kind of been one of my calling cards: is let's double down on being church. Let's you can't hide a city on the hill. This whole thing of like let's pretend not that we're not church in order to attract the unchurched. It, I can't help but see that of like how is that not entirely contrary to Christ who says, uh. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, you're going to stand out and you're going to stand out as different. You're going to stand out as light against dark. Stop trying to pretend to be twilight in order to attract the darkness. You know, that's not the point. In fact, well, maybe it is the point. You attract the darkness and you become fully dark. And trying to convert the pagans, all you did, church in America, is become pagan yourself. Uh, so what is, what is the antithesis? To stand confidently as a light upon a hill and you don't, you don't, you know, convert the darkness. You call them out of the darkness into the marvelous light. You don't convert to the paganism around you. The paganism around you converts to the church and the strength that the church is in its antithesis to pagan culture around. So yeah, let's double down on being church. Let's double down on the chancel. Let's double down on the, on the things that make, make people go, oh, this is obviously and manifestly a church. You know, to so where you could, I mean, already our sanctuary is just glorious like this. I mean, it's, it's my boasting in the Lord. Um, but you walk in and you look up front and it's like, oh, oh, I wonder what this is about. Well, there's like a five foot crucifix that you can't possibly mix hanging front and center over the entire thing. That's who this is about. How glorious. How glorious. Because if the pastor fails to proclaim Christ and him crucified, guess who clashes with the architecture, the pastor. You know, it's fantastic. It's, it's, what a, it's what a church ought to be. Normative. Normative for the people, for the pastor, for everyone involved. And that's what we have and, and what we're going to continue to do here at Faith, God willing, is double down on being church. Double down on being the light that shines in the hill. Double down on the contrast. And uh, not, not try to pander to the darkness, but rather proclaim to the darkness, repent, convert, become sons of light. That's who God created you to be in Christ. So yeah, thanks. I'm no, I'm preaching to the choir here, but it, you know, we all we all benefit nonetheless. Great insight. Okay, um, yeah, they did not listen. Verse nine. Okay, verse ten. What is the Lord's response? And the Lord said by his servants the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also sin with his idols. I mean, this just the Antichrist um, imagery here is just completely dripping. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. It's not a good tingling. wonder if they give a translational note here. It's almost like, no, they don't. Of course they don't. Uh, the ears tingling. What would that, what would that almost be like? would almost be like you get goosebumps, or like you get that pit in your stomach, like you just can hardly believe it. Yeah, but Not. Yeah, yeah, please. I have to laugh at the way it, it said, you're more evil than the evil people. Yeah, 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 I know. Right, right. Oof. Well, yeah, I mean, that's... um. Sadly, you can you can see uh, you can see the profound wickedness of the of the church at present when its true objective immorality appalls the pagans around. Right. You can think of um, well on one side of the theological the quote unquote Christian spectrum. It's not properly Christian, of course. Um, but you can think of who's that? Who's that? Um, that Baptistic group. Do you know who I'm talking about? They're um, they're somewhere in the Midwest. They're these. Um, I mean, they're just a they're a byword because they show up at funerals of soldiers oh, yeah. and this kind of thing. You know who I'm talking about? I mean, yeah. The the behavior is just so uncivil and immoral that even the pagans denounce this. It's like, like, good gracious, this you know. There's one thing to be to do what's right and be and be denounced by the pagans. That's not what we're talking about. There's another way to be just so egregiously inhumane. Oh, it's on the tip of my brain who those people are. Westboro Baptist. Baptists. That's what it is. Yeah, the Westboro Baptists. Or on the other hand, think of the the priest uh, and the uh, the abuse of children that's taken place in the Ro I mean, in the Roman Church. It's true, it's true, d disgusting sin and such that even the pagans despise it. You know, those are the things by which you, you can weigh the church and say, okay, if our, tr if our immorality is greater than that of the pagans, yeah, now, now we're like Manasseh. Now we're like Manasseh. That's a sad, it's a sad thing. So, yeah, so the Lord pronounces this judgment on bringing Jerusalem and, and Judah such disaster that the ears of anyone who hears of it will tingle. You know, like this is going to be, it's going to be a just punishment, but it's going to be an astonishing punishment and one that nobody ever forgets. And indeed, that's true. I mean, here we are. Here we are. And um, verse 13, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab and will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. It's kind of an interesting motif, God the dishwasher. You can think of that next time you're washing the dishes. You can think of that being the, the wicked Manasseh, and those like him going right down the disposal. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage 
and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Okay, I, I mean, again, what is the Lord saying? Like, okay, you want to be, you want to worship pagan gods? I'm going to hand you over to pagan gods. You want to be like pagan peoples? Pagan peoples conquer one another. You're going to get conquered. I mean, in a sense, God's just saying, like, quite literally, I'm giving you what you want. Have it your way. And uh, whenever we have it our way, it's not good. Just to finish this, I see we're right up against the time, but let's, um, oh, maybe I did. No, I don't know if I did. But verse 15, Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Like, that's pretty indicting. We've hit a high point or a low point, depending on how you think of it. Yeah, I see that we are thoroughly out of time. Let's let's stop there. I will run back over this section with you. We'll talk about this imagery of the plumb line and that kind of thing. Some of the details in this section that we just didn't have time today to go over. That'll be a nice way to uh, step back into this this text next week. Um, we'll go through Manasseh into uh, Josiah. We get a good king. Thank goodness. Um, and we get, a, get to spend a long time on Josiah again. And then we got, I think, more bad kings coming. So, you know, par for the course. First and second kings. The Lord be with you.